Welcome back to another edition of On the Record, the Daily Iowans weekly news podcast where we break down the paper's top headlines from the week. I'm your host and co-producer, Eleanor Hildebrand, and I'm here with our co-producer, Haley Marks. On today's episode, we have three special guests. We will be checking in with news reporters Claire Benson and Brian Grace to discuss their stories from this week, as well as Lauren White, a reporter for the Daily Iowans Ethics and Politics Initiative, who is here to talk about her in-depth piece about a hearing for ballot request forms in Johnson County. Whether you're in the car, at home, or in the classroom, we'd like to welcome you to this Friday, September 11th edition of On the Record. This week, the Daily Iowan covered the University of Iowa's reports on new COVID-19 case numbers, as over 1,600 students have tested positive since the beginning of this semester, as well as 20 employees at the university. The Iowa City Community School District began classes on Tuesday and was denied a request for a temporary injunction seeking local control of schools reopening. The school district will remain online for the first two weeks of the school year. A similar lawsuit from the Des Moines Public School District was also denied a request for a temporary injunction. Back-ordered textbooks are causing problems for University of Iowa students as classes entered their third week following Labor Day weekend. The Hawk Shop and Iowa Book feel the brunt of this as some publishers struggle with book production during the COVID-19 pandemic. As COVID-19 cases rise at the University of Iowa, students are choosing to leave the residence halls to protect their health and their finances. Students had until September 10th to cancel their housing contracts and must move out by September 13th to avoid financial penalties. The deadline was extended in early September due to the pandemic. The University of Iowa's undergraduate student government plans to release a campaign next week in collaboration with UI Student Wellness and Student Health about how students can be mindful of sexual health during COVID-19. And recent University of Iowa graduate Isabella Flores was named the temporary interim coordinator for the Latino and Native American Cultural Center on campus. You can read all of these stories and more in the Daily Iowans print editions throughout the week or online at dailyiowan.com. Brian Grace, a news reporter, wrote a story about the shelter house and the Catholic worker house continuing to provide services for homeless individuals in the Iowa City community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So how have the shelter house and the Catholic worker house, as well as other local organizations, persisted during the COVID-19 pandemic to continue assisting people in need? How have their organizations altered to remain safe? So... Of course, these organizations um, had to start abiding by CDC guidelines. So that meant uh, social distancing when they could, wearing face masks and limiting people in closed spaces. Uh, Like you said, the two organizations I talked to were the Shelter House and the Catholic Worker House, which do similar things, but they differ in a few ways. The Shelter House is spread between several buildings. So it's a little bit of a bigger organization. And one of the most drastic changes they had to make was their largest building that normally holds around 70 people for sleeping. They had to cut that down to about 45, which displaced about 25 people, which then they had to then find different housing accommodations for, so apartments, stuff like that. And then the Catholic Worker House is a little bit different because it's much smaller. They, at the moment, only have one house that they operate out of, but they also had to cut down on people that could be in the house at the same time. And they also had to change their hours for doing meals and providing stuff like that for the community. So when the shelter house had to displace those people to fit the CDC guidelines, did they reach out to other local organizations or try and assist the people that couldn't stay with them anymore? 
my source of reference, I guess, for the shelter house was the director of development, uh, Christine Ralston. And what she said is that the shelter house has this program in place that actually goes on throughout basically the entire year. What they call it is a rapid rehousing program. So they basically took these displaced people and they found them some kind of open like apartment accommodation. And then they actually helped the people pay for early months rent and down payments and stuff. So that's what she said, how they handled a lot of finding places for those displaced people. And so volunteers are obviously a big part of any nonprofit. So how has the pandemic and the changes these organizations have made in light of it impacted those who volunteer at places like the Shelter House and the Catholic Worker House? Yeah, definitely. So both organizations rely pretty heavily on help from the public. Um, That looks a little bit different for the both of them. Shelter House specifically relies a lot on fundraising to do the stuff that they do for their section of the community. Um, So COVID really disrupted that by preventing them from having their in-person fundraisers, which Ralston said accounts for one out of every four like fundraising dollars, the in-person events. So that was pretty significant that that had to change, but they've been doing some virtual stuff to get around that. Their biggest fundraising event, which is their annual book sale, she said typically raises about $25,000 in about two days, which is huge, and they had to postpone that. So that was a pretty big hit, she said. And then the Catholic Worker House, is a little bit different. They rely a lot on their volunteers to come in and cook for their community. And so since COVID started, they've um, actually increased their hours for serving lunches. But the um, a Catholic house or a Catholic worker house member and the co-founder actually, Emily Sinwell, said that they did see a pretty significant drop in volunteers, um, not because of a lack of interest, but just because the nature of the pandemic. So the way that they do grab and go lunches has changed a little bit. The volunteers don't get to like sit with the community and eat anymore. They separate much more. They're only like, they go like in and out to cook and then leave. So that's been very different. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and sharing your piece with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Next up, we have Claire Benson who covered the University of Iowa's faculty members and students reaction to the current wildfires in California. Welcome to the studio, Claire. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about the magnitude of these fires in California. How many are there right now and how much damage have they done thus far? Yeah, so right now there's around at least 22 large fires occurring across the state of California in both northern and southern regions of it. So in 2020 alone, there's been 4.6 million acres of land that's been burnt from wildfires. 2.2 million of that has been in California, so it's been about half of it. Um, Yeah, so there's a lot of different fires going on throughout the state, and it feels as though that the headlines regarding these wildfires are kind of getting um, kind of suppressed under headlines due to like COVID-19 and different protests going on. So it hasn't been a huge spotlight in the media, so we definitely wanted to talk to some staff and students from Iowa who are from California and have personal connections to that just so we can get that headline out there and raise more awareness about the wildfires and what's going on in California. So you've spoken with both students and staff members who were originally from California for this story. How are they feeling about the fires that are currently ablaze and do they have any previous experiences with similar fires? Yeah, so I talked to a lot of people, most of them were from Southern California, from like San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Clarita area, 
Um, and so they've experienced like fire days at school. So it's like how here in the Midwest, we get school off due to snow days or like other inclement weather. So in California, they had fire days where the air quality outside was so poor and there was so much ash in the sky that they were, um, they had the school day off since their school campuses are mostly outside. So that's affected them. And then they also like have had to, one of the professors I interviewed, she went to University of California at San Diego and she got sent home for a week because the air quality was so poor and there was wildfires really close to the campus. And she described feeling very anxious and nervous about having to like quickly pack up her things and evacuate with her mom, which she said felt similar to our current situation with COVID-19. We just don't know everything and everyone's feeling very anxious and worried about what we don't know and what's unsure for the future. Well, thank you so much for joining us and discussing your piece, Claire. And finally, we have Lauren White, a reporter for the Ethics and Politics Initiative at the Daily Iowan, who is also a digital producer. Lauren wrote a story about a district court case regarding the Johnson County Auditor's decision to send out absentee ballot request forms with pre-filled out information. Johnson County is just one of three counties in Iowa that the Donald Trump campaign has sued. How are you doing today, Lauren? Hey, I'm doing good, Eleanor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back on the podcast. So Johnson County is the last of three counties in Iowa that Trump's campaign is suing for these pre-filled out ballot form requests. What have the verdicts been from district court judges in Lynn and Woodbury counties, and what does that mean for the hearing in Johnson County? Well, in Lynn and Woodbury, the court ruled in favor of the Republican National Committee. So basically, all of the ballot requests that were sent out and returned in those counties, they're like they're invalid, they don't count. So all those voters will have to resubmit like new fresh ballots. And that was like up towards like 100,000 like returned ballots, ballot request forms that they got. So all of those voters do have to resubmit and then they will get their, their ballot come October when voting can finally begin. But I just listened in on the Johnson County hearing and after two hours of the back and forth, the court was unable to make a like ruling today. And due to the really packed like docket, like all the different hearings that that judge did have to listen to today, we won't be getting a, a ruling today. Yeah, and in your story, you said that more than 400,000 people in the state of Iowa voted by absentee ballots in this past summer's primaries. How many people in Johnson County requested these ballots and how does this hearing potentially impact their ability to vote outside of just like reapplying for the ballot form? Um, so far, the auditor said that he's gotten about 25,000 re like requests and that like obviously that number like will go up like the closer that we get but until we hear the ruling from the court on whether or not those ballots have to be resubmitted, everyone just kind of like stays put and like doesn't really do anything until we know whether or not those ballots will be invalidated. But for the most part, the worst that really happens is that they are nullified and people have to resubmit their ballot forms because like really it's just resubmitting those and then getting some new ones and people still can vote by mail and like there's still plenty of time to do that. So really it's just whether or not those voters have to resubmit or not. So you talked to the Johnson County Auditor, obviously, for the story. What was his thinking behind sending out these pre-filled requests? Well, basically, his idea behind like pre-filling like pre information in those request forms was that 
it was going to just make the whole process simpler and like easier just because if really all you have to do is sign your name and send it back it's more of like a sure thing that people will actually send them back rather than like if they have to fill them out and like take some time out of the day to fill like to do that it might not get sent back as quickly so really it was just like efficiency and making it easier for people to get those ballot request forms sent back in thank you so much for being on the podcast today lauren we hope to have you back soon yeah hopefully we can start meeting in person again sometime soon Fingers crossed. Follow The Daily Iowan on social media and check out our website for breaking news updates and the latest COVID-19 related news. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another edition of On the Record.